This is Offspin. If I'm investing enough, what does it matter how I spend the rest of the money? You don't care about it. You are worried whether I'm spending too much because you're not sure whether your, your goals will be met. So do the financial planning process first and the rest will fall in place automatically. I, I splurge quite a bit. Maybe not on things that, uh, that are visual, but I'm happy uh, because I, I don't care because I'm do investing enough. I think that's the magic ingredient. Once you have the knowledge of how much you need to invest to achieve a goal, everything else just magically, you know, and your entire daily existence becomes more enjoyable. You don't think about that cab fare. You don't think about that particular movie. If it's in, you know, everything is in order, uh, in motion, perhaps with the help of an RIA. But then once you achieve that, yeah, I mean, this is eye-opening and, and I hope a lot of people listen to this. This is that Offspin original you've all been waiting for. It's time for Let's Get Rich with Patu. Welcome back to Let's Get Rich with Patu. Uh, diving back into this second part of the episodes where we are delving to very short answers, rapid fire to Pattu, who has to answer within one minute uh, on a variety of topics. Pattu, here's question number one. We've established that debt mutual funds are anything but fixed income, right? There is volatility, there is trading of the underlying asset. Why are they still considered safe when compared to equity? Because the bonds themselves, uh, the, va the market value of the bonds themselves don't fluctuate as much as equity. The uh, because there's not as much speculation and they're more or less stable. You don't expect every company to you know become suddenly financially poor or suddenly financially uh, you know richer. So if you look at the credit ratings changes, they're they're not frequent. They're, they're occasional and therefore the volatility in the bond market is always going to be lesser than the volatility in the stock market and therefore it reflects in the NAV. And is it fair to stay fair to say? When we see the line of growth of a debt mutual fund, it is genuinely linear if you take it, say, over a five to ten year period. Um, it, or does it, it flatline at certain years? No, the the it will be linear in the sense it will go up, but there will be kinks over a five year period. There will be kinks, ups and downs. There will be small valleys, not be as deep valleys as in the equity case. And the rate of change will change. Uh, the, this is mm. very important. The rate sometimes the the growth will be uh, like that, sometimes we like that, and so on. So that's what we—that's what determines our returns. So the rate of change of the now with time will change. You have very famously said at some point, um, it is not the fall in the markets that is a concern for investors; it is the sideways market. Similarly, is there a sideways market in the entire world of debt and fixed income? Oh yes, if you look at the guilt funds, they have a prolonged sideways market. We are currently in a sideways market for the long-term guilds. Uh, my guilt funds have been 5%, uh, 6% in that region for two years now, more than two years now. So, uh, guilt funds, long-term guilt funds, sideways markets are very, very common. But let's clarify. Do you mean you're getting 5% per year growth? Then it's not really sideways, right? Uh, in the sense that the market doesn't move much. The what Suddenly, it'll be like 15%, 16% returns when the interest Even rate Even in change. debt? Yeah, yeah. In the long-term segment. 
the long-term segment. And of course, you'll pay the price, you'll get falls as well. But when nothing happens, you get this kind of mellow period. Uh, so you have to go through all of them. But in comparison to equity, where you've had some years back to where it's zero or oh, negative, that doesn't Absolutely. happen, right? India? No, no, it can happen over certain years, it can be zero. But yeah, you're right. It, it's very unlikely you'll get five years zero returns and so on. That's not going to happen. But again, it's all relative. I'm talking relative to a liquid fund. The Got debt, it. the guild fund would be much more worth. Great. What are money market funds but to and how do they work? So it's crazy that uh, in the money market or the cash market as they call it, uh, money is the commodity. So okay. they say, or uh, I have 1000 rupees, I'll give you 1000 rupees, you hold it for one day and you give me back 1001. Mm -hmm. That's how a, uh, that's a bond. So there's no interim interest payouts because that period is so short, a week, a few days, one day, overnight, that kind of thing. So I give you some money, you hold it overnight. When you give it back to me the next day, you give me the money plus a little bit of interest. Who is doing this? Who are these uh, bodies? The RBI does it. RBI does it with banks. That's the repo rate. The repo rate is an overnight rate. Uh, the reverse repo rate is an overnight rate. There are institutions who do it. And uh, so it, it, it depends from, it can stretch from a few days to a few weeks, maybe a month or so and so on. And after that, I'm not sure when the interest coupon payments start. I probably, I think it starts six months or beyond that, if I'm not wrong. But uh, that's so anything below that is a uh, cash market or a money market where there are no interest payments you uh, you the cash is being exchanged with an interest component with the extra component so as a supporting question why would a bank be interested in getting this cash for one day is it because it has desperate needs to pay somebody else or just trying to simplify why this market exists the money market no this is no the uh, the what i talked about the overnight trade is with respect to the rbi that is a uh, money supply because the, the rbi is the governs the money supply and it uses as bonds as collateral so it tells you how much it can the ban, uh, banks can borrow from and deposit to the rbi so that's where the whole process starts but to what are arbitrage funds and similarly to the money market how do they work what is the world of arbitrage so it's a very uh, arbitrage is a very complex idea uh, if you put, uh, try to explain it to the mutual fund the most simple idea is um, I would say, although the, the example itself is kind of uh, illegal, but let me give you a simple example. We have a Pondicherry, which is a union territory, right? Boo sells at a much cheaper rate in a union territory because they have lower sure. ex excise duties, etc., etc., and so on. So it is, of course, illegal to transport booze from the union territory to outside. But just for imagine, if you can do it, you buy a crate of booze uh, there, and you just cross the border and sell it, right? And the and the different the profit you've got is the difference in price. So that is the arbitrage. So you buy something in one market, and you sell something in another market where the price is different in the two markets, and you pocket the difference in price. That's called arbitrage. And this is done most commonly by uh, buying stocks uh, in the cash market, in the normal market, cash stock market. And there is a derivative markets, you sell futures contracts as, uh, uh, you know, or you do the opposite. And, and as the derivative contracts expires, the price difference comes down, comes more or less to the same point and you pocket the difference. There's a movie called Arbitrage uh, starring Richard Gere, which uh, explains this concept beautifully, but it does not explicitly do that. 
Oh, wow. This is a movie I'm definitely going to keep my eyes out for. But to push you a little bit, this uh, arbitrage sounds risky if they're doing stuff with the futures uh, and the underlying price of the same stock. But then why is it part of the world of fixed income and debt? It's not it's not part of the fixed it's not part of the fixed income technically. It is it is an equity investment. Arbitrage fund is a proper equity investment. But considered very widely safe. It is reasonably safe if I buy the same stock and sell the same stock. But if I, there are uh, there is once a very famous arbitrage fund, I don't remember its name, I've written about it. So they sold one currency and purchased another currency. And suddenly the currency, the exchange rates changed and the fund crashed. Okay. So that's the risk. Uh, if you buy and sell different commodities, different stocks or different bonds and do try to do an arbitrage there, you are in serious trouble because something changes in between for the, uh, in the bond, then you are in big trouble. You lose a lot. But as long as you're buying and selling the same product, mm. the same commodity, then it's reasonably all right. Of course, the risks are that what will happen is that arbitrage opportunities may dry up. That is a major risk. That, for example, when there is a stock market crash, that means that the sellers are more than the buyers. Hmm. So, which means when you try to find arbitrage in the markets, you won't find because there are not enough buyers. And uh, un until the buyers return, the arbitrage returns will also be low. So, that is the, the primary risk, I would say. Am I right to understand there's also arbitrage between, say, NSC and BSC for the same stock? Does that all, does that world exist? Yes, I think so. Yes, I'm not, I, I am not uh, seen anybody do it. But yeah, it, it is possible, I suppose. Yes. And is most arbitrage trading done by algorithms or by actual human intervention? Um, I, I think the algorithms are necessary. Hmm. Otherwise, to find, otherwise, you can't spot it. And the problem is that even with algorithms, because the market depths has increased, the arbitrage opportunities have come down. That is the reason why arbitrage funds are now called as hybrid funds. They hold 35 up to 35% in bonds because a pure arbitrage fund will give you very poor returns. Hmm. They need that bonds to, you know, to bolster returns. So that is the problem. The, the market has dried out and you need algorithms to try and search for it. But too, so here's a very interesting question regarding recurring deposits, right? It was part of our very first episode. It's perhaps the most basic thing we should be doing. Now, say if somebody has finally, with after listening to us, after your suggestions, accumulated six months of monthly expenses in a savings bank account. It's just lying there. What are the thumb rules we should use for the amount per month for the recur recurring de deposit as well as its tenure? Say if it is, say the monthly expenses are 50,000, uh, they've got six months, so, uh, you know, three lakhs there and literally three lakhs, three lakh, 25,000 sitting in that savings account. How, how much should they put into a recurring deposit and for how long? So since this is for an emergency fund and assuming that the emergency has not occurred in those six months or afterwards, what I would suggest is once that the kitty of six months expenses is built via an RD, you convert the RD into an FD. Got it. The banks will be happy to do it. And you can, as long as you don't redeem, you can always keep, you know, uh, rotating the FD at newer and newer rates. The rates don't matter too much. Additional amount, you don't need to worry about RD, the tenure and so on. Just open a liquid fund and put it there. Just dump it about 5% of your monthly expenses. And say there's an instance after the six months where I do need to tap into my... Uh emergency fund, what's the best way to do it considering you're recommending an FD? 
you will have to open it. There's no choice. Of course, there are some things called flexi deposit FDs where you can you know, withdraw as much as you want without breaking the whole of the FD. You can use that as well if you uh, want, but it doesn't matter too much. You can just op open the FD and put, if you have some excess, put it put in the liquid fund or you know, open a new FD. So it's okay. But are there some rules you have for recurring deposits in terms of how to think of tenures? There are tenures as short as six months, some are five years. And what is the monthly amount? How do you calculate how much you should put in per month? Um, you can you can estimate how long it would take for you to get to that six months of expenses and set the tenure as per that. I mean, there's no real hard and fast rule. It depends on how much people can put in every month and so on. For some people, it, it can take one year to build that, two years to build it. So they can calculate how long it will take approximately and then set the rate during that. Patu, can you tell us what RBI Retail Direct is? What is this website all about? And how can we take advantage of it? So RBI Retail Direct is basically a place for retail investors to buy RBI bonds and state government bonds when they're issued or soon after issue. So it's a primary marketplace. And it is useful only for those investors who want an income. Other people should not buy it, should not use it. Uh, only those who are going to retire, early retirement, or you know, quitting, quitting a job, become an entrepreneur, etc. Uh, we talked about earlier. Only they should consider doing that. Yeah. Why did you say that, Patu? Why should only people who want an income uh, look at RBI Retail Direct? So, yeah, if you, uh, if you buy the bond, it's going to pay out interest. You're going to pay tax on that and you have to try to reinvest it. So you're going to lose wealth. Whereas if you buy a debt fund, uh, we talked about this several times, you don't need to pay tax on it every year, like an FD or a bond. So it's much more better. In terms Is of it good for somebody who's, say, at age 60 and about to retire and buys a large chunk of bond and then gets yearly payments from that? Is that a smart investment strategy? Yes, yes. Depends, depending on... So the idea is that um, if you if your pension is not adequate, you, uh, your existing pension, you can buy the bond as a, you know, sub to supplement it. The only, there are many advantages, but the only catch is that unlike an annuity that you get from an insurer, the coupon rate or the interest rate does not increase with age. Ah. Whether you're 60 or 80, it's the, the interest rate percentage. is going to be the same. Whereas the insurer will give you double digit uh, interest rates at 80 because they expect you to conk off soon. Hmm. That's not going to happen with the RBI, but the, the advantage here is you can hold it in a either or survivor mode with your spouse. So even if you die, the spouse is not going to get the income without much of a hassle. And the, you will always get the principal back that, that can be given to your spouse or your uh, legal heirs, uh, your children, other people, etc. And there's no need to uh, do the life certificate business. Every year you have to send life certificate, proof of life. Yeah, That is not necessary for a bond. Can we dive into how these RBI bonds work, but to a little bit and how they pay out? Is it, for example, if you invest one CR in year one, at the end of each subsequent year, they gives you that fixed percentage. Um, and then when you want the entire principal back, how does that work? So it's it's every six months. Okay. If you buy it midterm, then you will get a first in, uh, interest would be prorated depending on the amount left. And then after that, it will be every six months. And you, the most important problem here is you cannot sell midterm you have to wait for maturity so there's only one point say if it's a five-year bond you can only sell it after five years yes because there are no players out there to buy mm. uh, because only the corporate guys are going to be buying and selling 
they're not going to buy one chunk of bond they want you know crores fair and enough and what happens at the end of that term uh, do we have an option to sell or do we continue how does no, that no just it, it'll just come back to your account the entire the principal okay yes but to how would you in a very short amount of time describe what gdp is and how it affects me as a retail investor so the gdp is a measure of the wealth in the country and it's an extraordinarily approximate measure because nobody can really measure wealth i know it's it's a, it's a very approximate idea uh mainly useful for politicians i would say rather than for the retail investor but there is a way in which a retail investor actually benefits but they're not going to benefit over 6 months or and so on the common man or the retail investor's daughter or granddaughter will benefit from gdp growth so it takes over a lifetime of change you can see today um somebody made the observation that uh, all the house help that we have the maids that come the uh, the their sons and daughters are never going to do this job because yep. they they have made sure that they are so our so either we do the household work chores ourselves or we pay through the nurse for like it maids, is in the west ah for, like maids who come in cars so yeah. we have to pay for all that so uh, things are changing and that's our economy growing we had maids walking now we have maids coming in cycle we have maids coming in two wheelers the next step is maids coming in cars that's the gdp growing that happens over two lifetimes perhaps the last step is maids not coming to your home even in their that's, fancy cars that's probably good yeah but how would you describe what gross domestic product is uh, am i right to assume when you say it is a measure of our wealth so say we have a billion citizens a billion citizens multiplied in by every individual's wealth is that the oh, number uh, we are arriving see, at i'm not a economics expert to give you a working definition but this is what it means and uh, it just it, it takes into account the jobs the unemployment inflation the the kind of foreign reserves we have the debt external debt we have and and so on so there are multiple factors that go in sure but to how does an individual retail investor like you and me invest in international markets what is the simplest way to do it and should we do it i don't think we should do it because i think most people do it for the wrong reasons because they will say that i want diversification that's probably the most misused word in portfolio management because most people don't understand what it is uh they will say they want diversification but the only reason they they are doing it because they see the last couple of returns are year two year returns are very high so they want a piece of that slice but they would don't understand that it will not be the case always and what will happen so let's say i have i want to hold 10% of nasdaq 100 it will not be 10% all the time it will f- fall to 5% it will become 15% will you top it up when it is 5% or do you have the guts to pay tax and uh, make it 10% most people don't so the re- most people they just want to clutter their portfolios because they see something shiny and i would say don't do that and if somebody had to go against your advice and invest in international markets what is the method what are the tools we have i think the the most if tax efficient tool is to buy something like parak parak flexi cap or axis uh, global opportunities or i forget the name so these are the they buy a little bit of stocks right and uh, they get tax efficient returns because they will take care of the rebalancing and so on but of course because of the inr usd uh, exchange rate and we have to strengthen the inr the rbi has set strict limitations on how much you can put in and 
the mutual fund industry has quickly breached that limit and now it is kind of so people are worried will i not get enough exposure i think this will get more than enough exposure mm. with that uh, that's enough but other, then the other option is to buy etfs uh, or uh, international brokers buy the uh, stocks directly but that's just a hassle it's too much of a hassle it's not necessary yes my yeah so sorry if you notice the interest in nasdaq 100 has waned a little bit because it's been underwater for the last couple of years or so at the time of making this video so that's how it happened that's how it it does not it won't last final question on investing in stocks abroad say i love the company apple i just want to invest some small part just for fun i love investing in companies like you said right the only people who should invest in stocks are those who love studying companies and investing in companies how do i buy apple stock sitting in bombay sitting in chennai sitting anywhere in india what's so, the easiest way yeah the again international brokers that's the only choice directly. such as can we name some no vanguard allows you to do it i think if i'm not wrong um, i that's my problem i'm short of names because that's i never the nse also has a portal for this i again i'm sorry i don't have names I sure so is it as easy as signing up uh, doing a kyc putting in my inr and then in my name getting an apple stock something like that you will have to transfer the money that gets converted to usd and then you buy it but to can you briefly talk about the concept of frugality and how, what is frugality in your mind compared to you know denying yourself you know enjoyment and living life the right way in the present and what kind of effect does it have on getting financially independent faster so um my definition of frugality in fact i would not even call it frugality is what i would like and personally for me and for other people is to strike a balance between investing and spending so which means that we've talked about this several times i want to enjoy life today but i also want to ensure i enjoy life all my life hmm. and therefore i'm striking that balance by not spending everything i have today but putting a small amount of it away for investing and that is in my definition frugality i'm frugal about how much i spend but i'm also frugal about investing i'm not overdoing both i'm just finding the balance it will take years to find a balance sometimes some people even find a lifetime to find a balance but that's the path that we should uh, go after and not the conventional definition of i mean many people assume that people who are frugal are uh, depriving themselves they are misers and so on no i think it's it's more a thought out uh, spending you think about whether is it necessary to actually spend on this or not that process is what i would say is frugal has frugality helped you achieve financial independence faster i i think frugality is something like you know some some say god given talents right i think it's one of those god given things either you are in, inherently frugal or you're not so i'm inherently frugal and therefore obviously yes it i have not uh, purchased many of the things i could for example i could have purchased an expensive car several years ago i could have purchased expensive phones i have not because i never felt the need for them if i don't feel the need for them i'm not depriving myself right so uh, that's how frugality works in my case in general and yeah, yes naturally it has given me more money to push in and that has uh, hastened my financial independence but but that's so i mean it it, it, it is not requir- mandatory requirement for everybody that's a really nice answer in terms of cars and and these materialistic things 
I tend to say I'm kind of similar to you, Patu, but I don't think I'm inherently frugal. The amount of money I spend on ridiculous amounts on things like food and 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 experiences is needs to I need to take some action. So if there is somebody like me who does not feel I'm inherently frugal, are there any steps I can take? Uh, any tips and tricks or thumb rules? So the the uh, one step that will solve all these confusion is that do a proper goal based planning do a proper mm. financial planning once you know that you are investing enough for your goals or you are on the path to getting that target investment amount everything else will fall in place if, if i'm investing enough what does it matter how i spend the rest of the money mm. you don't care about it you are worried whether i'm in, uh, spending too much because you're not sure whether your your goals will be met. So do the financial planning process first and the rest will fall in place automatically. I, I splurge quite a bit. Maybe not on things that uh, that are visual, but I'm happy uh, because I, I don't care because I'm do investing enough. I think that's the magic ingredient. Once you have the knowledge of how much you need to invest to achieve a goal, everything else just magically, you know, and your entire daily existence becomes more enjoyable. You don't think about that cab fare you don't think about that particular movie if it's in you know everything is in order uh, in motion perhaps with the help of an RIA but then once you achieve that yeah I mean this is eye-opening and and I hope a lot of people listen to this but too if I know that I'm going to die exactly one year from now how do I ensure that when I die everything is seamless for my family to take over and and get all the benefits of my investing is there any thing that you find the population is not doing and should take care of? See, um, regardless of when we're going to die or many of us may not have the fortune of knowing when we're going to die. Some people do, but whether it's a fortune or not, I don't know. But yeah, mm -hmm. some people do. Then you can correct your mistakes. Uh, that's why I mean. Uh, so I think what we should do is we talk about nomination and will and so on. But the most important thing is Make your loved ones the second holder in your investments. When you do that, automatically their KYC is done. The transmission of the money or the funds or the stocks or the units becomes so simple when that happens. The first holder is dead, you just shift it to the second holder. The paperwork that you have to do, they have to do, the company has to do is so less. Instead of a nominee, you have to prove your identity, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and so on. And it's unnecessary. And that's why I tell people: if you have a lot of assets and if you have children, you tell them before you die, I am clubbing this money with my first son. So this much assets my first son is going to get. He or she uh, is the first holder, uh, is the second holder in that investment. So after I die, that will go there. Similarly for the daughter, similarly for the third, whatever. So you do this partition right away. There's no need for a will. There's no need for a contest. I mean, uh, typically, hopefully. Uh, so it's much more easy. That's what people should be doing. They should be making their relatives the second holders, the relevant relatives second holders instead of nominees. Nominees will work in some cases, but this is more powerful in my opinion. What a cool way to think about it. For an existing investment, is it easy to make the person I wanted to go to a second holder once it's already begun? I think the mutual fund industry 
has made it very difficult for that to happen. The stocks may also be a problem. But for stocks, you can have a DMAT account in the second order and then shifting will become easier later on as long as they're nominees and so on. But wherever possible, do it. Fresh investments, I would say, uh, must be done that way. But existing investment, not always, especially mutual funds. It's hard to do. Could you detail out the DMAT account solution you had? How does that work? For example, I have no. a DMAT account and I've got my entire equity plus my debt in that account, right? Uh, how does one transfer that to the near and dear ones? Uh, there must be nominees if they're not second holders. Then no, but how do I make them a second holder in my DMAT account? Is that possible? I would think, again, that is tough. I don't think it's readily possible. Uh, I think that's something that SEBI should do that will make be a game changer. But if they don't, they don't, then the nomination is the only way. Yeah. Okay. So nominations or make your near and dear ones the second holder in all your investments. Here's a cool one. Why do you feel and how do you feel every Indian can grow rich? I think uh, every individual, whether they're Indian or not, can grow rich. But I'm also confident most people will not. Because most people, they, they don't have their priorities right. And they assume they can do things quickly or not at all. So I'm fairly confident most Indians will not grow rich, although they can. I hope they listen to this and, and you know, I hope they listen to this show and get some kind of inspiration or direction. Uh, because I feel for every person, Pattu, you go through phases of life and then at some phase of life, you realize that, look, I want to leave something behind or I want to live a retirement which is comfortable. Whether it's early or later, I think that is a realization that comes for everyone. And, you know, there are solutions for whichever stage of life you're at. Um, and we'll leave you with that. Pattu, thank you so much for yet another very interesting episode that went from one place to the other. We didn't know where it would turn next. Uh, I hope you get a lot of shorts out of this and I hope uh, it is received well by our audiences on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you consume us. Please write into us, like, share and subscribe. And without your questions, we can't continue and we would love to, Pattu would love to. So till we see you again next week, Pattu, thank you so much again and see you soon. Bye-bye. You just heard Let's Get Rich with Pattu. An Offspin original. Isn't it the coolest show you've heard in the Indian podcasting space? And even if it isn't, what's the point of getting rich alone, right? Share this show with those you care about and perhaps even with those you don't care about. But make sure you share this show with only those who you don't mind being richer than you. The music on this show was created by Pattu's biggest fan, Rajesh Ravi. And everyone on the Offspin team had some part or the other to play on the show. Let me name them quickly. Harshli Nisrani, Krishank Das, Sandeep Banerjee, Arif Chagla, Anand Krishnan, Rajesh Ravi and Heer Khan. Heer, by the way, is also to be blamed for giving Pattu his gangster look, which is how he looks on a daily basis. Um, and me, Sidhan, your host. Let's Get Rich is available on all audio platforms wherever you consume your podcasts. So spread the word and we'll see you next week. You know we do this show only to help you guys, right? But if you're listening and you're that one person who has perhaps lost money and are holding it against Pattu or me for making you lose that money, then not only are you a mean person, but you also need to listen to this legal disclaimer. 
This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute any financial advice. Views expressed are not official positions of financial institutions or Pattu or mine for that matter. Although we strongly believe in them, listen to this disclaimer even more carefully. We recommend consulting a qualified professional before making decisions. We disclaim liability for inaccuracies or losses from using this information in our show. By listening you agree that the host, guests and producers are not only awesome people, but they are not responsible for your financial decisions or outcomes. This is Offspring.